Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's pretty familiar. It's familiar territory, really. I don't know how much you've actually been spending right in your book on that and looking around, But so much of it is familiar, and yet, uh, you know, the entire world considers it this amazing body of truth and teaching that has become so much a part of what we we believe and uh, the the words of Christ that we hold on to. We're in Matthew 6 this morning, and I want to take you down through a little bit of it just to get started, because there's this thing that shows up in the middle of all this that I think is rather unexpected. It's a twist on, on, on how Jesus teaches this to people, but you see this thing that keeps showing up, and I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, he begins Matthew chapter 6, and he's talking about giving to the needy. And this is where the phrase, you maybe have heard it before, uh, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. You've heard that phrase before? It actually comes from this passage. And, and he says to them, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do, To be honored by men, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give, do not let the left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Interesting words. He goes on into prayer, teaching about prayer. And he says, uh, he speaks about that. He says, uh, these people that... Uh, love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father in heaven who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then we find the Lord's Prayer, which all of you I know can, can repeat and say, have memorized. Uh, he goes on and talks about fasting. And he speaks about that, and he says, this is cool. He says, you know, uh, when you fast, don't look like these people who disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then as you get down to the rest of the chapter, I mean, there's, there's the, the, the verse about uh, that no one can serve two masters. You're familiar with that? He'll, he'll either love one or hate the other. It's the passage also that includes not worrying about the future. You know, the birds of the air, don't worry. Look at the lilies of the field. That, that's a powerful part of that. And he finishes out with, with uh, the verse, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So just kind of, I think, a little bit of an unexpected angle to hear him speaking about the things you will receive a reward for and the things you won't receive a reward for. And there's lots of talk elsewhere in scripture on that. Like check out a few of these verses. This is right at the end of the book. And, and Jesus referring to his return, he says, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. Then in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. 
Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. There's that word again. Jesus said in Matthew 19, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor. He was addressing this, this, this person. He says, you'll have treasure in heaven. And then he said, then come follow me, this treasure in heaven. Um, Luke 14 is really profound on it. Kind of, kind of fits in with kind of the style of what he's been saying in Matthew 6. He said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will have been repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so right in the middle of Matthew 6, surrounded by his saying, you know, you, you can do it so you get your reward now, or you can do things so you get a reward later. He repeats that in a bunch of different places. In the middle of that is verse 19. And we know this verse, but it's, it's I find, interesting, inspiring, and a little freaky to think about. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think the deduction here is there's something going on with this thing he calls rewards. There's something happening there. What are we to make of this? I've been thinking about this, and and, 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 and the fact that this seems to be important to Jesus, not only the reward thing, but the manner in which that all gets handled. Uh, one thing is this juxtaposition of here and now. I, I, I put the definition, I think you got it up there. Juxtaposition, the fact of two things being seen or placed together with contrasting effects. I mean... You can't read these kind of words without thinking about the relationship between here and now and then and there. The relationship between earth and heaven. I mean, these words are placed kind of in context that you have to read them thinking about. It's not just about what's going on now, it's about what's going on then. God's not asking you to ignore the present, but he's wanting you to kind of place it in context or in juxtaposition with the future that he has promised. I think the best example of this is Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Jesus reminds us weird words. Rejoice when you're being attacked and falsely accused because of my name, he says. Because great is your reward in heaven. Well, you can't do that if you aren't able to kind of consider here and then, you know, now and then, here and there, juxtaposition. Also, you have to conclude, I mean, God's keeping track. A little spooky, really. God's keeping track. He sees, he cares, he evaluates, he tests our motives. I mean, maybe that explains some of this uh, in secret stuff we see in Matthew 6. Giving and praying and fasting. It seems he doesn't miss anything. Scripture says even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will not fail to receive a reward, a way to go from God. 
God keeps track. He pays the dues. I remember years ago, a young family, and we were coming back from, uh, from Bangor or somewhere. We were driving a, one of those Dodge K cars with the wood grain paneling on the side. <laughs> anyway, we crossed the border and declared what we had bought, and we had to pay some money and drove off from the border. I said to Janet, you know... I could have got across there and they never would have found that stuff. <laughs> and we had a little discussion about that, you know, how it's rotten that we have to pay that. I already paid tax in the States, now I gotta pay it here. And she said, you know, God pays the dues. Like for me, that doesn't sound too memorable, but for me, it was like getting hit in the side of the head with a two by four. Like I never forgot that. I, I, to, to this day, I remember that. That time in my life where I first started really considering seriously that there are, there are bigger things at play than what you might see at face value. God keeps track. And then number three, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. We have way more to gain than we can imagine. I mean, in this, in this whole deal, what's at stake? Think about the most amazing place you could ever imagine. And heaven's way better. I mean, I mean, try to describe, if you can, the epitome of beauty and grandeur. Heaven is going to blow that away. I mean, just imagine, get your head around the most amazing aromas or food or ideas or music or pleasures or experiences. Heaven is going to blow that away. We have more to gain than we could imagine. I think the happiest verse in scripture is 1 Corinthians 2.9. says this, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God pays the dues, and we can't even get our head around what's ahead that way. And so those, those three implications, I guess you'd call them, the, the juxtaposition of thinking about now in connection with what we believe is coming and um, the, the conviction that God sees and remembers and the apparent truth that what's ahead for us is mind-blowing, those three things for me kind of underscore my belief that heaven is real. I've been talking personally here now. They, they just kind of help support my belief that I serve a a, a risen Savior who I believe has gone ahead to prepare a place for me. And you say, well, Pastor, I mean, are you saying that you doubt the reality of heaven? And I'm saying, no, I don't, but sometimes I've had my moments. You're saying, that you, you think that maybe we don't, this isn't all the way it sounds like it's going to be? I've had my moments. I believe it. I mean, what was the disciple said? Uh, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We're kind of there, I think. And for me, it's helped me to try to keep before me the reasons and the rationale that I have to be confident in this whole thing. One of the best definitions of, uh, of a Christian in Scripture is in 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 8. I love this verse. If you've never seen this verse, you, you need to remember this one. It says this, Though you have not seen him... You love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's an amazing verse. 
and I, I love that I, I feel like it defines what it is to walk the walk of faith as a believer in in Jesus. And I think it's great because it's so real, it's so brutally honest that even though I do believe in him, there are times when I don't see him. I believe, but there are times when it's just like, I love him, but there have been moments and there are repeated experiences where I am filled with painful questions and I wonder to myself why he isn't doing things differently than he is. I I like the way it says it. There are just flat out times when though I believe in him and I love him, I do not see him now. And I have to live out my life, my faith life, I have to live it out with the presence of those nagging thoughts. God, where are you? And why are you so silent? And why are you not filling me in on what's going on here? I I just think, I wrote it down this way. It's not just atheists and agnostics who struggle to believe. And the strange thing is, I was, <clears throat> I was, I was kind of drawn to this aspect of this verse um, because I, you know, we, as as the staff are kind of looking around at this stuff and deciding who's going to zero in on what passage, this was the the one that that fell to me. And I, <clears throat> you know, as I'm thinking about this, it just seemed weird to me that I was drawn to that aspect of of uh, treasures in heaven and why do I believe in heaven? I, I, in the midst of that, I came across some stuff from Dr. Gary Abernas, and he is an American historian and a theologian who uh, is connected to Liberty University. That's the largest Christian university in the world. He wrote a book said, uh, entitled, A Historian Explains the Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. And in, in that, he says that his whole basis for, for contending that the resurrection is something that you have every right to believe in. He bases that on six things. And you can look at them quickly here. First is that Jesus died by crucifixion. And he maintains, and I think it's correct, that very, very few secular historians question the fact that there was a messianic figure known as Jesus who actually lived and was put to death on a Roman cross. That's, that's history. Second is that his disciples had experiences which they believed were appearances of the risen Christ, and they went to their graves uh, maintaining that. People don't argue with that. And that, that, the, that their belief, these disciples, their belief in the resurrection pretty well turned the religious world upside down and continues to this day. In fact, you know, Jews still refer to Christianity as the resurrection religion. The resurrection is integral to it. And number four, that this belief was circulating and and very soon after the resurrection. It wasn't like a long, long time, you know, that they began to develop this belief that on the heels of Jesus claiming to be resurrected and his disciples saying that they had encountered the resurrected Christ, this belief circulated very soon. In fact, when Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, there were already these creeds and sayings and beliefs that were being circulated about the resurrection. And and number five and six are the fact that both James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, the apostle, did not believe during Jesus' lifetime. They came to faith after they claim to have had an encounter with the risen Christ. 
And he says, those six things are like, they're, they're pillars that, that for him, I liked them, that, 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 you know, for him gives him confidence in, in the resurrection. You say, well, just read the Bible. Doesn't that give you confidence? Well, okay, good for you, maybe. I guess for Gary Abermas and Don Ingersoll, that uh, a little of that stuff helps. And what I found interesting in that wasn't so much that stuff, but was the fact that he claims that the skeptics he deals with don't dispute those five or six things. They say, yeah, 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 that's all true historically. You're right, you're right, you're right. But we don't believe it. And the reason we don't is we don't believe there was a place that Jesus went if and when he died. Like, okay, you're proven that he resurrected, but where was he when he wasn't resurrected? Because they say there's no evidence for heaven. No more evidence for heaven than there is for Narnia or Oz or whatever. They just, they just object to believing more on the absence of proof of heaven than they do on valid proof for the resurrection. It was inter very interesting to me, and it's sure related to my kind of my journey in, in getting ready for this message. So you say, why are you sharing this stuff on a message about rewards in heaven? Because I believe that you will never live a life motivated to, the things that, to do the things that will count for eternity if, if you doubt deep in your heart that eternity in heaven exists. So Habernas suggests not so much arguing with skeptics about the resurrection, but instead two things, contending first of all for the existence of God, you know, things like intelligent design, you know, discuss with them, argue with them on that issue, and also for evidence to support a belief in the afterlife. And I thought to myself, you know, a lot of us haven't really considered that. What? The evidence in our belief in an afterlife. Because we know, we feel innately that we don't cease to exist after we die. Our bodies might quit working, we might keep breathing, but our spirits exist. There's something in us that makes us know that. And if we've been around a loved one who passes away, we, we see that with our very eyes. Yeah, Habernas quotes a recent book that he, he claims maintains that as many as 30 million individuals in North America, Great Britain, and Europe in recent years have claimed to have a near-death experience. Uh, an NDE, I guess, is the term. Multiple people, multitudes of people who have died or ceased to breathe or whose hearts have stopped or they lost brain function. For some time they were gone and then suddenly they were successfully resuscitated and brought back. And the stories they tell are pretty compelling. And you say, well, what does that prove? I mean, trust the Bible, my friend. I, I don't know if it proves anything. But for me, when I think about storing up treasures in heaven, it undergirds again in an additional way, my belief that heaven does exist. Maybe at least there's some contemporary evidence to suggest that something more is going on than what we see with our eyes. And there's a lot of books being written about this. Uh, Proof of Heaven was a book I read by Eden Alexander. He's a neurosurgeon who had prided himself on all the scientific proof that when we die, we die, we're, we're dead. Nothing beyond that. Any, any kind of thing that you think happened was just a bunch of neurotoxins or whatever going on. And he had done a lot of work on that until 
he came down with bacterial meningitis and he, he dies or whatever, stops brain function and all of that. And he experienced things that he wrote this book about, changed him. Uh, Dr. Mary McNeil is another book I read by, she's a doctor who was kayaking, I think, in South America, and she has an accident in, a, in an eddy pool, and the kayak goes under and gets trapped, and she knows she's dying. She tells in that book about later when, when they're resuscitating her on the beach, and she feels herself coming back into her body, and she doesn't want to. She, she's resisting it. Uh, Heaven is for real. You maybe saw the movie. Uh, Todd Burpo, a kid that, again, meningitis, who uh, the parents put off getting him to the hospital and he, he dies. And it's weeks later after the kid is miraculously saved in this process that the kid begins talking about stuff he thinks, he says he experienced while he was wherever he was. One of the things, like he, he said to his father, I saw you in the next room as you were, as you were freaking out. And, and, uh, and, and, and speaks about these things. 90 Minutes in Heaven is another one. Don Piper. I met this guy. He, uh, he's driving along and he has an accident on a bridge and he's dead for 90 minutes. And he's covered with a blue tarp. And there's this other guy driving by later who has this strange compulsion from the Lord that you must get in that car and pray with that. Who's up, whoever is under that tarp. And he has to argue with the paramedics and the firefighters to finally get in the car. And Anyway, it's an amazing, amazing story. Imagine Heaven uh, by John Burke is another one. Uh, that particular book, when my daughter Lindsay died, um, that book was so encouraging to Janet and I. Janet and me. It was just amazing how, how that book just kind of was, was a comfort to us. And when, when Lindsay passed away, and in that moment, when we were in the room there with her, I had this weird sense that all of a sudden she was up above us looking down on the scene. I mean, I'd never thought about that before. It just like suddenly I had this strange feeling that that was happening. And then I get into this book uh, by John Burke, Imagine Heaven, and he began to, to talk about so many people experiencing that kind of thing of floating above the scene of their you know, the deathbed scene or the accident scene. Um, a guy by the name of Dr. Bruce Grayson wrote a book called uh, Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. He's published 100 peer-reviewed articles in medical journals talking about this very thing. And he tells like some freaky stories about that. A lady who saw, uh, she, she's floating above her deathbed scene and she sees a nurse drop a pin or a brooch and then a doctor steps on it. And she's able to tell that after she's resuscitated that she, you know, she couldn't have seen that, but she did. Another man who <clears throat> is floating up there and he's able to look into an, an operating room in an adjoining room and see a guy having his leg amputated. And when he's resuscitated, he tells the team what he saw happening in the next room. One fantastic story this guy tells is about a lady who is in that mode where she's hovering and and she sees a 12-digit number printed on the top of one of the medical machines. And because she's OCD, she instantly memorized the number. And when she is resuscitated, the first thing she says to a nurse is, hey, write down this number. 
And the nurse wrote down the number, and of course, it matched the number on the top of the machine that she couldn't have seen from, uh, weird, I know. John Burke in Imagine Heaven, he talks about a lady who'd been blind from birth, and she's resuscitated and is able to tell the colors of the people who were around her bed when she was dying, the colors of the clothes they had on, and yet she'd been blind from birth. Another guy, they couldn't find his false teeth after they resuscitated him. And he said, I know where they are. So-and-so took them and put them in that cabinet. I, I don't know. I, like, I, maybe you think I shouldn't be talking about some of that stuff here. You say, why this detour? Because we're talking about living life here with an awareness that somehow what we do here and how we live here matters later. And if you doubt the existence of an afterlife, you're going to tend to not think as seriously about that. You're not going to live for the long view. And I'm just trying to share with you some of the things that have undergirded my belief in this in spite of the, uh, the loss and the grief I've experienced. A daughter, a mom, a mother-in-law, a brother-in-law, and my wife in the last few years. I mean, I've had lots of reason to think, be thinking about what happens then. What happens next? Experiences make you do that. I remember the night Janet died just over a year ago, and I came home from the hospital that night. It was still, it, the sun still hadn't come up, and I walked out onto my deck. It was a, it was a starry sky, just one of those nights you could see the, all the stars. And I stood on the deck, and I looked up at into the sky and I, I said to Janet I know you're somewhere but where are you? Right? What, what, what's, what happens then? Where are those people? And the Bible talks about preparing for that in a bunch of ways. I mean one significant way that maybe I should throw into the mix here is the Bible specifies that, that there are two things that count in that. One is belief and one is one is behavior. This is maybe an oversimplification, maybe too trite a way to say this, but like that what you believe will determine where you spend eternity and how you behave will determine how you spend eternity. Simplistic, I know. But it's, it's reference to, you know, the, the Bible speaks of, of two judgments, the great white throne judgment and the bema seat judgment. The great white throne judgment you see at the, at the end of Revelation, in, in uh, Revelation 20. Here's just a few words about it. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and the earth and heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. The lake of fire is the... And, and the, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Troubling words, but it's, it's referring to the great judgment when the books will be opened at the end of time pretty important stuff. And then the Bema seat judgment refers to the judgment of the righteous. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what we have done, whether good or bad. It's like the Bema seat judgment is not the, the great white throne judgment where the books are open. It's the judgment not of retribution, but of reward, where our lives are going to be celebrated, and it's going to be the well-done, good and faithful servant thing. And, and when you kind of begin putting all that together, I mean, there's a bunch of implications for me that, that rush to the forefront that also kind of paint a picture of what it seems like this is all going to be about. One of them is this teaching that the first shall be last. It's, it shows up in Matthew 19. Um, Jesus has encountered the rich young ruler. And maybe, remember he said, the guy said, what, what do I need to do you know, to become a follower of Christ? And he said, you need to get rid of all your riches and come follow me. And the guy, it said he went away sorrowful. And after that happened, the disciples in that account said to Jesus, hey, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Basically, what are we going to get? And he said to them, you're going to get a hundred times as much and heaven to boot was kind of how he, what he said. But then he went on and laid this weird one on him. But he said, but many who are first shall be last and many who are last shall be first. Leave it to Jesus to keep you scratching your head, right? But that's, a, that's I mean, that's, I mean, think, think how that principle, if we understand it correctly, is going to blow your mind in heaven. How some of the people you thought had their act together are way up on the cheap seats, you know? And the people you didn't think knew what was happening, some of the most unseen and unknown and undervalued and underappreciated people, perhaps they'll be in heaven in places of influence. And I don't know. Randy Alcorn, he, he wrote an amazing book called Heaven. And I think that's the book. I heard him say this, that he, he believes that in heaven, Down syndrome people are going to be in charge. And he said, the reason I believe that is in heaven, the, the currency of heaven is love. And he said, Down syndrome people know way more about love than, than any of the rest of us, right? So he said, it only seems, seems to make sense to me that in there, when things are turned upside down, I don't know. I mean, he talks about pets being in heaven. You know, he says about the, 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 living, the living creatures. He said, so, you know, why wouldn't God want to reward you with suddenly your Labrador retriever showing up? Ah, that's maybe a little weird. I don't know. But he, he's thinking about some of that stuff. Another thing that kind of emerges is this thing of meaningful work and responsibility. It's, it's, taken, uh, it's taken from that passage where, uh, you know, the, the faithful stewards and Jesus and the guy says, you have been faithful over a few things. And in that, there's, there's a verse that says, since you've been trustworthy in this small manner, I will put you in charge of 10 cities. And people have thought, well, does that mean, you know, in heaven that, there's going to be meaningful work and we're going to have responsibility and, you know, the more faithful we are, I, I don't know. Another thing that makes me think about is just the mind-blowing grandeur of heaven. I mean, just to try to get your head around that. The new Jerusalem, the city four square, so the Bible says it's going, to come, it's going to come down out of heaven and rest upon a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth where the redeemed will live forever in peace and in the presence of God. And everything's going to be recreated. There's going to be an absence of pain and regret and grief and illness and tragedy forever. It's freaky, you know? 
I read this week that the Hubble telescope now is 30 years old and they've got this new James Webb telescope or something. And the pictures they're seeing, did you read any about that? It's been in the news lately. The pictures they're seeing of just one little kind of keyhole glimpse out into the cosmos is blowing their mind that, that they're seeing more way out there that they didn't know exist. that's way more than what they do know exists. I mean, we just can't get our mind around that. And we get these glimpses into that. And you say, so we're supposed to lay up treasure there. And you know, frankly, you think, okay, why do I need to lay up treasure there? Sounds to me like it's just going to be good enough as it is. A friend of mine, I was talking about this message a couple of days ago. He said, I don't know why you're even preaching it. He said, we're not, going to, we're not even going to think about reward when we get up there. It's going to be so good. And I don't know, maybe he's right. Jesus appears to care. He talked about this. And what things will get rewarded? Like, how do you think, what do I have to do to lay up treasures in heaven? Well, maybe one way to think about it is, what do I have to do to lay up treasures on earth? And then do the opposite. I don't know. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you consider that. The Bible speaks about the poor, too, in connection with this. In Proverbs 19, it says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Janet's favorite verse was Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown to him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the treasures are going to be. Acts of service, values that we've held dear, prayers prayed, times we've fasted, charity we've given, forgiveness we've extended, amends we've made, confessions we've shared. I don't know what all that stuff, choices we've, we've made, sacrifices. I read Eric Metaxas book on Bonhoeffer this year and he talked about Bonhoeffer, this genius Lutheran pastor during the war who had all this, these job opportunities in America to teach and to pastor and he left them and returned to Nazi Germany Felt that God wanted him back there and he was, he was killed by, the, by the, the Nazis in the midst of that. Do you think there'll be a heavenly reward for guys like that? I think so. I think the greatest treasure in heaven, though, is going to be the people who wait for us there. I mean, when you, when you think about that, people who were befriended by us, people who were loved by us, relatives and mentors who prayed for us, Maybe even after they arrived in heaven, they're still praying for us. Who knows? Those who benefited from your giving or your going, people you prayed for, people you loved, people who had a hand in your salvation or you had a hand in their salvation. Somehow only heaven's going to reveal all that. The people we underestimated or overlooked, maybe someday those people are going to become you know, our best friends in eternity. Perhaps people we disagreed with or struggled with, someday we're going to see in a very different light. People who are our heroes, our models, our teachers, our pastors, our coaches, people who influenced us for good and for God, those we loved and shared Christ with. These, I think these are the, the real treasures of heaven. And then the, there's the people we love the most, you know. Our parents, <clears throat> our brothers and sisters, our families, our kids. To imagine being in a relationship with people we love unblemished for all of eternity. I mean, 
reward. More wonderful than you can imagine. So we, you know, you put the package together. We have the assurances of this from the writers of Scripture and from, from uh, pastors and teachers and theologians who have, who have tried to teach us about this. And we have the words of Jesus who made it pretty simple and clear when he speaks about rewards and about heaven. He turns to the thief on the cross. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And pardon if my extra biblical content annoys you, but we have some of these weird, freaky glimpses into the hereafter that stir within us the sense that there's something more. Sometimes they may feel supernatural. Sometimes it may be looking at a sunrise or a baby born or being there when a loved one dies. A faith-building experience that delves into what's next. And it convinces us that there is a spirit world. There's a, there's a third dimension. There's an alternate reality. There's something else. We know it. We sense it. We feel it. I've talked about my first time to go snorkeling in, in Hawaii. And, you know, I'd watched Jacques Cousteau when I was a kid. And anybody remember Flipper and Sea Hunt? Sea Hunt? Yeah, you're old like me. And I, but I, you know, I'm, I'm in the water on Molokini Reef off Hawaii, and I'm looking at Jan. We've got our goggles on, and there's this moment, and then there's this moment. And in Hawaii, I could see back to the back of the auditorium underwater better than I can see in the daylight, right? I, I was unprepared. As much as I thought I knew about it, I was unprepared for that. I think the, I, speaking of being unprepared for something, the weirdest thing that I've experienced um, happened a couple years ago. And Janet and I were in bed asleep. I was asleep. And uh, unbeknownst to me, she was having this pity party missing our daughter, Lindsay, who died of cancer. And uh, so I'm doing what people are supposed to do at night. I'm sleeping. She's just in the midst of this. You know, she's, she's crying. She's praying. And she's praying, Lord, if I could just have a hug from Lindsay. So <clears throat> the weird thing is that in the midst of her going through this, suddenly I sit up in bed out of a deep sleep, and I turn to her and I say, I didn't even know she was awake, but I just turned to her and I said, man, you'll never believe what just happened. I had the weirdest dream. Said, Lindsay just walked into the room. And I remember looking at her and thinking, man, she looks fantastic. And she walked across the room and gave me a hug. And this, this amazing hug that I could feel. And then I woke up. Well, I tell her that, unaware of what's been going on, I mean, blew her mind, like absolutely blew her mind, and it did mine when I began to put the pieces together. And I don't know what you make of that. I mean, I, I don't dream very much. It felt certainly like a gift from God to her, to Jan, and a gift to me, because there's something about those rare glimpses we get into, whatever that parallel uh, reality is, 
that, that help undergird our faith. And so I want to share my, uh, my life verse with you in closing. And uh, I think it's up there. It says this, Therefore, <clears throat> we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I hope you'll do a little thinking about the life that God rewards and, uh, and lay up some treasures. Because I think you can take that to the bank. <laughs>